0: The title for this morning's talk is Putting the World Together Again. As those of you who were here yesterday may remember, uh, yesterday I talked about the need to divest ourselves of possessiveness. And Doing so, I stress the fact that by de- debasing our relationship relationships and reducing them to ownership relationships, we have stifled our individual lives. We have alienated ourselves from the world today. I wish to examine how such ownership project has not only stifled our individual lives, but our collective life as well. And not just, in fact, our collective life, but our relationship to the planet, to the planet Earth. And I will then consider how this sort of malpractice can be reversed. So, let's first look at the history, just briefly, in a brief paragraph, the history of our so-called civilization. Look at it. It's basically a chronicle of plunder and appropriation of things, territory, power, other people, slavery, even even acquiring wives, appropriation of whatever could be appropriated by the few, by the powerful. Initially, in, in the course of history, this appropriation was accomplished viciously, without any disguise. But it's continued to this day, even under the guise of the rules Of democracy and the so called free market. Within each of our countries, the elites are increasing their power and wealth unabatedly. And the same is happening globally, with only a few countries or a few corporations having an effective say in the fate of the world. In fact, we operate on the assumption that has been um, proclaimed by many economists that greed is the only way to go. It's the only possible guideline for civilization to prosper. Well, we believe that it's perfectly desirable for the rich to get boundlessly rich. And for the economy, measured by the GMP, to grow unabatedly. Really does it occur to us Is this may be just a lame excuse to justify the plundering of the earth by the powerful plundering of not just the earth but also of the power less to let the insatiable egos of the powerful run riot. The mainstream thinking appears to pay little attention to the consequences of that. My job here, is to highlight them. You see, because regardless of whatever benefits, progress of what we call progress might bring, and uh, I agree, it brings some. Its collateral damage is truly <coughs> devastating. Let me just pick a few examples, <coughs> most obvious ones are the casualties from wars waged to appropriate territory and natural resources. They're still going on with some excuses. It includes famine and destitution, often as a sequel of colonization, gentrification, and and economic policies that uh, hurt the weak includes the impending catastrophic consequences of global warming. It includes even the erosion of the democratic political system, particularly in this country, as it's being preempted by money. All this It's really pretty obvious to anybody who's been watching. But there's also a much subtler damage caused in all areas of life by the primacy of greed. Since my time and your patience is limited, let me just pick up one item here which has to do with my earlier life as a scientist. As many of you know, I used to be a biologist. In that life, several decades ago, as I saw it at the time, my and my colleagues' primary goal, overriding goal, was the advancement of knowledge. Personal advantages, advantage did occur sometimes, often enough, but that was a corollary. That was not the goal. And you can tell that because we were pretty eager to share the results of our experiments with anybody came along without reservations. Let let me put it in very concrete person terms. There's a, a high school friend of mine whose name is Cesar Milstein. We studied together, we started university together in Buenos Aires. This is in Argentina, of course. Started university in Buenos Aires together, chemistry at the time. We then moved into biology. I came to study here. He stayed in Buenos Aires. And uh, eventually, in the late 60s, both of us or maybe it was 70 that he, no i can't remember exact date that he left he left for england i left for the us he got a job at cambridge university and he went on to 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 break into an extraordinary field to let me try to put it simple simply he managed He discovered with two colleagues, but he perhaps was the primary force there, a a way of cloning cells that have stopped dividing so they'll continue to divide. And so, cells, as they multiply, they can become a factory of the products that they were capable of making. For instance, he cloned antibody-making cells and therefore he could reap a harvest of any kind of antibody if he picked the right cell to multiply. What did he do with that? He and his colleagues published it. That today is a no-no. Today you don't go to send your article to the journal before you have visited the patent office. Now, he could be immensely... Well, he, he died a few years ago, but he could be immensely rich, or his wife, or his... However. And in fact, as he told me, as I visited him in Cambridge, the university was furious with him because the university could have gotten a cut mm-hmm. from that. And the, He knew very well what he was doing. And by the way, he got the Nobel Prize as a result of that work. But he wasn't doing the work to get the Nobel Prize. He was doing the work because he was motivated. (laughs) Now, this is not happening anymore. I assure you, although I'm not a scientist anymore. But look, a few weeks ago, there was a front-page article in the New York Times. It was about scientists... When was it? Various research teams, mostly Americans, as far as I can remember, decided to come together, pool the results, and forget about applying for patents. Wow! It was unbelievable, one participant was quoted as saying, it's not science the way most of us have practiced it. And he explained that in that unusual location right, they had parked well we it's a quote now we have parked our egos and intellectual property noses outside the door and agreed that all our data would be public immediately. Wow. You see, what's unbelievable is that this be unbelievable. <laughs> particularly for somebody like me, that's, of course, that's what you do. What's <laughs> unbelievable that we should be habitually conspiring to inflict collateral damage on knowledge in order to pocket the profits. So, there is all these forms of collateral damage from the casualties of war, from the democracy being bought out, and and more subtle areas like scientific integrity being lost. And yes, I'm really concerned about the collateral damage of what we are doing. But for all my concern about that my former concern, concern foremost concern is about what i call core damage damage to the core of ourselves damage to our integrity without which there's never any hope of reversing the plunder of the world See we can say, the plunder is bad, so stop the plunder. But if we don't have the integrity to understand, then we'll keep doing it. It's only by protecting our true core, our true essence, that we can have access to the understanding to the awareness of what's the suitable thing to do under each circumstances. Otherwise, if we forfeit this essence, we're deprived of guidance and all hell is prone to break break loose. Let, Let me just illustrate that a little bit more concretely. Say that we decide to reduce collateral damage and ignore our core. For instance, somebody in the military looks at what is happening with these drones dropping bombs on Pakistan and discover a way to reduce the number of civilian casualties. Fine, but if we do not understand the overall situation, the next thing that's going to happen, for sure, is that the number of drones will increase. Say we establish a system of cap-and-trade so that we can reduce CO2 emission, carbon dioxide emission, by making it costly to emit, but somebody can buy those permits to emit, something like that. Likely, and we are told, to reduce emissions. But in the process, we are legitimizing the plunder of the atmosphere. Say that we equip the police throughout with taser guns or rubber bullets instead of live ammunition. Sure, they're going to be shooting much more than they're shooting right now. We legitimize their brutality. The core problem is that we, we our culture, insist that we should run the world as if it was in perennial war. In fact, we are in war after war after war. And and then we're told, well, look, this situation is serious, we're in war, we need to elect leaders that are brass and the corollary of that is full of ego, so that they will bypass all the scruples in order to prevail and win the war. Not talking about war now, but in other areas, the uh, New York Times, a few months ago, had a, an obituary for George Steinbrenner, the owners of the Yankee team who had just died, and it praised. Steinbrenner for running his team as a general would run a war. Mm -hmm. That's our culture. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. there's a story of Hurricane Katrina. This is an article from Rebecca Solnit who has been studying catastrophes like that, and I'm quoting. The story of Hurricane Katrina as originally constructed served authoritarianism, racism, and a general grim view of human nature. It was first told hysterically, as though New Orleans had been hit by a torrent of poor black people or had become, as Maureen Dowd of the New York Times put it, a snake pit of anarchy, death, looting, raping, and marauding thugs. An overwrought Huffington Post columnist spread even rumors of cannibalism. While many major media outlets repeated rumors of snipers firing on helicopters, the, those rumors were never substantiated, but they interfered with the recu- rescue operations nevertheless. The gist of these theories was that in the absence of authority, people went berserk. The implied solution was the reimposition of authority, armed, ruthless, and intense. Heavily armed Blackwater mercenaries were dispatched to New Orleans, and they shoot a citizen with little fear of repercussion. While the focus was on young men of color as a peril, police and white vigilantes went on a murder spree that was closed over at the time. The Associated Press reported on September 1st, 2005, quote, Mayor Ray Nagin ordered 1,500 police officers to leave the search and rescue mission Wednesday night and return to the street of the belagged city to stop looting that has turned increasingly hostile. End of quote. Only two days after the catastrophe struck, while thousands were still stuck on roofs, in attics or overpasses, on second and third stories, and in isolated buildings on high ground, in flooded neighborhood, the mayor chose protecting property over human life. There was no commerce, no electricity, no way to buy badly needed supplies. Though unnecessary things were taking, much of what got called looting looting was a stranded foraging for survival by the only means available. The stories of social breakdown, she says further down, were quietly retracted in September and October 2005. But the damage had been done. A great many found new confirmation of the old stereotypes that in times of crisis, people, particularly non-white people, revert to a war against each other. this, then what happened in the audience, amounts to one more excuse for the culture of war. And of course the culture of war is based on propaganda. Though, those of you of my generation, if any, might remember that in World War II, under Hitler. Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda, was far more pernicious than Goering, the Minister of War, the head of the army. And if you ever read or read George Orwell's 1984 as he points out in a very visionary novel, the re-engineering, re-engineering of minds is more central to the Big Brother enterprise that he conceived than the redesigning of the map of the world, of the universe at that time, through wars. So, we have allowed to fracture our world, allowed ourselves to fracture our world and our integrity in all all possible ways. Can we still put it back together? Do you remember Humpty Dumpty? Sorry, I'm tone deaf or tone mute, actually, but anyway, let me remind you. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But of course they could not. How could they? That's not what they are trained to do. They're trained to (laughs) take things (laughs) apart. (laughs) It's for Humpty to heal himself and to his friends to nurse him and assist him. Medical help? Sure. Not the army. likewise with our globe shaped like Humpty or vice versa with the world armies are trained and meant to break up not to heal we'll have to find ways for the world to heal itself how do we contribute to this healing we need to start by reversing the damage to our core. Collateral damage is something to look after too, of course, but the main thing is to reverse the damage to our core, promoting solidarity and cooperation. This includes dismantling the ownership project. Of course, that doesn't mean disregarding the rules of ownership in place, absolutely not. It simply means not making ownership the centerpiece of our collective life. It also means rediscovering the sense of interconnectedness, of communality that was erased in the course of our so-called civilization, but still can be found in some segments of society, certainly in this lovely sangha, but not to put ourselves above anybody else, you know, Uh, certainly among indigenous peoples, absolutely and certainly, too, among animals. You may remember that um, on Saturday I was quoting, yesterday I was quoting Barbara Smuts, as she related her experiences with the baboons in Tanzania. Here's another quote from her about this sense of community among animals and including herself. She starts talking about how she felt in Tanzania when she was there and spending a lot of time with the baboon, so she said, I started feeling like a baboon myself. (laughs) Learning to be more of an animal, she says, came easily as a light I let go of layers of thinking and doing that sometimes served me back home but were only hindrances here. All I had to do was stick with the baboons and attend to what they did and notice how they responded. After a while, being with them felt more like the real world than life back home. Baboons are nothing even if not highly idiosyncratic, individuals, as distinct from each other as we humans are. But they also exist at selves in community. And this aspect of the being is particularly salient in certain contexts. They most vividly convey, convey The baboons, a sense of group spirit when they share a highly pleasurable experience. Once, after a few days of heavy rain, we stumbled upon a plethora of newly emerged mushrooms. A baboon delicacy that often evokes competition. This day, however, there were enough mushrooms for everyone. To my amazing amazement, before anyone dug in, they all paused to join in a tr- troop wide chorus of food grunts. Their bodies literally shaking with excitement. In that moment, I realized that collective rejoining, rejoicing in celebration of sustenance must have begun long ago. The baboon's thorough acceptance of me, combined with my immersion in the daily lives, deeply affected my identity. This Shift in experience is well described by millennia of mystics, but rarely acknowledged by scientists like herself. She's a scientist. Increasingly, my subjective consciousness seemed to merge with the group mind of the baboons. Although I, quote unquote, the I, was still present, much of my experience. Overlap with this larger feeling entity. Increasingly, the troop felt like us rather than them. And what's clear, reading this whole article by Barbara Smuts, is that. She could truly open to the baboon, the troop of baboons, because she had learned to open to herself. And that's what we learn to do here. We gather here to meditate, to, that is to open to the whole of ourselves, difficult parts and all. God and that is a critical step in opening to the whole world as we meditate we begin to break away from the broken record of our relentless inner dialogue whose job has been that's what it The inner dialogue is meant to do, to keep things locked up, under control. And when we break free, we begin to experience life anew. We discover what it's like to open our senses to what we actually sense. Whether it's regarding the breath or the cosmos. That's a type of experience Barbara's much had when she opened up to the baboons. And so, here, as we practice opening up to ourselves, opening up to this community, we also prepare ourselves to open up to the world at large, as well. Not making it happen by design, by philosophical, metaphysical design, but simply by lowering our boundaries. But letting a sense of belongingness permeate us if and when it comes our way, our way. And it does come our way. We just have to recognize it and let it in. At times, it is possible that this sense of community may pervade us, not just our connection with the world of animals, human or not human, but also with all the living world. Listen to Mary Oliver, extraordinary poet. She puts it so vividly. Let me share this poem called White Flowers with you in closing. Last night, in the fields, I lay down in the darkness to think about death, but instead I fell asleep, as if in a vast and sloping room filled with those white flowers that open all summer, sticky and untidy in the warm fields. When I walk, the morning light was just slipping in front of the stars, and I was covered with the blossoms. I don't know how it happens. I don't know if my body went diving down on the sugary vines in some sleep sharpened affinity with the depth, or whether that green energy rose like a wave and curled over me claiming me in its husky arms. I pushed them away, but I didn't rise. Never in my life had I felt so plush or so slippery or so resplendently empty. Never in my life had I felt myself so near that porous line where my own body was done with and the roots and the stems of the flowers begun. Let's end on that porous line. Sit porously for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.